Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Brady, and I am here with Nancy Lemaster, who is the committee chair for the Institute for Supply Management's Hospital Report on Business, a report that I enjoy doing to find out what's happening in the healthcare industry. Nancy, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks, Tim, for having me. So the report looks positive. The numbers are above 50 in the 55 range. Uh, share with our audience what's going on. Okay, so let's look at May as compared to April. If you remember, you know, January and February, the hospitals really emptied out of COVID and, and we saw a big jump in volume in April. So in May, Volume was still good, but it wasn't quite as robust as it had been in April. So relatively speaking, May, the hospital PMI was still at 56.9. So it was up six tenths of a point. But when we drill into it, business activity, 55% growth, but down six points from April. And the, the new orders were at 56.5, down two points. Um, the one that puzzled me um, was the backlog of orders that moved into contracting. So at 48 versus 55.5. So when I think about what happened during the month, um, I think going into May, I thought we might see a little bit more um, robust business activity um, relative to demand for elective procedures. But I think part of what played out in here, and it didn't quite show up as clear in the numbers, but in that employment number, the good news was it moved into the growth range, which was exciting. It was up 6%. And we saw comments like we were able to hire more people than we lost, which was a good thing. But we also saw a lot of comments about the fact that um, staffing was um, having a negative impact on capacity. So, um, and we also saw a few comments from particularly the coastal areas of some of the COVID um, variant starting to seep back into the hospitals. So I think that what we saw in the month, it was good volume, it was growth. You know, we don't wanna, don't wanna lose tr track of that. But I think the backfill on electives is going a little bit slower than some thought it would. In part, I think, mostly because of capacity. Don't think it's demand. Um, in looking at some of the other sources out there and colleagues, um, you know, the Wall Street that covers like the implant manufacturers, et cetera, there's still belief that there are uh, pent up demand from people who put off elective procedures. But I think we are struggling to get the right staff and the right amount of staff to be able to, to handle that elective uh, the elective volume. Nancy, are the COVID cases declining then in hospitals? So we heard that primarily, yes, they, they were declining. The volume is elective backfill. There were only a couple of, of incident, incidents where people were saying, you know, the positivity rates were up and they were, they were seeing some increase in cases. I think what we're still primarily seeing, I know, you know, this is true in St. Louis, the positivity rate is in, in the red again, up over 20%. Um, but we aren't seeing that translate into the severe cases that require hospitalization. You and I talked a lot about the antiviral oral medications being available now that hopefully will keep people out of the hospital. 
Um, so we're just kind of taking a wait and see, but we're not not seeing that immediate translation from high positivity rates to high hospital rates. Um, so that gives us hope. There's a lot of motivation for the hospitals to really be focused on getting that elective volume back. The, um, you know, I've talked about Hoff, Kaufman Hall before. They do uh, financial reporting on hospitals and they, they continue to see a lot of negative hospital margins. So, you know, getting that elective volume back is, is critical to getting that cash flow and, you know, being able to cope with these high labor and high supply costs. Is there any information in this report about how hospitals are doing on collections and cash flow? Because they have been under incredible strain with COVID. And I'm assuming that the federal government is reimbursing them for those costs insurance companies are. Is it coming through for them? Um, you know, I think it's it's mixed. It's going to depend on the kind of insurance that folks have with with COVID um, and the, the resources um, required to take care of them. So yes, they are getting some reimbursement, but they're they're also under a lot of pressure because of the high labor cost and and supply cost, as we've been talking about. They're getting hit on both both sides, and you know we kind of saw that if you looked at the supply related metrics this month. You know, we saw that supplier deliveries had gotten slower again, 61.5 versus 57. So that's that's not good news. But what we did see, and again, I think this relates to some confidence that the COVID numbers are down and are going to stay lower. We saw inventories contract. So 46.5. So again, we've, we saw this a couple of months ago. We don't know if we have a trend yet. But we're starting to see the burnoff of some inventories. The inventory sentiment at 60 was, you know, up 3%. So hospitals know they have too much inventory, but they also know supplier uh, delivery disruptions. The shutdown in China, Shanghai has been really painful for hospitals. That's a primary source of contrast media that's used in MRIs, CT, and radiology procedures. And there's only two manufacturers left now, the, the industry is so uh, concentrated. So with inability to get supply from China, you know, that's one of the areas where we've had to look at conservation protocols and, and actually changing how we do some procedures because we can't get the supply that's necessary. So supplies have been an issue, um, but the prices we talked about, oh my gosh, you know, 78.5, up another one and a half percent. Pharmaceuticals took a big jump this month, 63 from 58. So again, you know, you're just seeing that expensive, hard to find labor with expensive supplies. And in some cases, some um, limitation as to where they can find the substitutes. So they're ending up having to pay more just to get whatever is out there. We have talked uh, on previous shows about the federal government's <clears throat> excuse me, response to this pandemic as it relates to future pandemics. And I know it's awfully hard to predict, gee, what do we need in stock uh, to handle the next pandemic if one comes along? But what's been the discussion at this point? Are there any stockpiles forming or is it still in the discussion formative stages? You know, I, I did some research on that, and it's almost mind-boggling the 
the volume of kind of groups that are looking at this. But you know, the question is, how will it get coordinated? One of the things um, you know, I found that they said there were over 200 industry and government partners really trying to work on establishing different um, approaches to resiliency. And, and they're very um, industry specific. There's healthcare specific discussions going on, as well as say, Tim would tell you, manufacturing specific, you know, that might be dealing more with transportation, semiconductors, you know, things like that. But within the, the healthcare, um, I'd say there's a couple of of um, specific dialogues going on. So one of the things that we know is that uh, one of the big sticking points when we, as we went into the pandemic was trying to get a sense of what inventory was out there. What did hospitals have? What did states have, et cetera? And part of the challenge of that was there wasn't like a good communication pathway in place to get information from the hospitals, roll that up, to maybe um, so you know to a certain state level to a federal level, and so there's dialogues going on with organizations like the American Hospital Association, the supply chain group arm within that, some of the group purchasing organizations on how we could um, set up a communication channel where they can quickly get out uh, surveys to find out what's out there, where where are the hot spots. But the other big problem is that healthcare has been slow to adopt industry standards, data standards, so that we call um, things the same by the same name. So what you would be shocked, I always tell people, please hope that if there's a recall, it's peanut butter, not your pacemaker. We can find the <laughs> peanut butter. Your pacemaker could be a problem. So we have all these internal numbers that manufacturers have a number, the distributors have a number, the hospitals have a number. So one of the things that is, is being looked at out there is how do we make an accelerated push for everybody to adopt a data standard so that there's one number that identifies that specific product. So for example, you know, a 3M and 95 respirator mask, you know, we shouldn't have to have all these crosswalks from all these different you know, places to try and figure out how many are there. So that data standard piece, something you and I haven't talked a lot about, but it goes into that idea that we talk about as how does your healthcare data move from you know, hospitals and get consolidated? When it comes to being able to know you have a specific pacemaker, right? we need those data standards in place. So kind of the communication and the data standards are, are two big dialogues going on right now. How can we make that better for the next time? And then a third one that's going on really gets at your idea of what should be in the stockpile and how do we rotate that stock so it's not obsolete when we need it. Um, and that's got a lot of government plus uh, industry distributors plus providers in, in those dialogues. I think what everybody's a little bit unsure is how does the discussion go into action? And I don't think we have a good feel on that yet, but at least people are starting to understand the complexity and take, you know, break it down into, we've got to do more. So a good example, you and I think I've mentioned before is the strategic national stockpiles distribute their product to the state. 
and then the states have to distribute it to the hospitals. Well, you've got 50 states doing it 60 different ways, right? Um, and so, you know, could we come up with some, even if, even if you still give the hospital or the states that latitude, could we at least provide them with some best practices and get them at a more consistent level of capability? Interesting problems that you brought up. Let's talk about imports and exports for a bit, and I'm particularly concerned on the import side. Uh, I'm sure that's part of the supplier delivery issue. Right. Uh, is it getting any better or is it still struggling? Yeah, so imports went into the contraction mode this month at 47 versus 52.5. And what's a little unclear is this, is it down because they are finding more domestic product or is it down because they just can't get them because China's shut down? You know, we've got the disruption. So at this point, that's that's not real clear. But, you know, we did see in that, that touchless order metric that we look at for hospitals, which really is looking at the amount of their supplies that are coming from their distributors that they come in automatically, they don't have to touch them. Those got worse. And so that's another metric of substitutions and, and disruption. So I think it's a little too early to tell if the import number really is gonna stick at a lower level or it's just a supply disruption in general. We don't look at exports much in healthcare because most US hospitals do not export care to other countries. There's a few, Cleveland Clinic, et cetera. So um, we, we really haven't looked at, at that number too much. So we'll keep an eye on the imports. I think we're just still, one of the comments though I thought was really um, insightful and good. You know, we look for those silver, little bitty silver linings, anywhere we can find them, was the comment that hospitals are getting better and faster and more agile at identifying product substitutions. And by doing that, it takes some of the pressure off the clinicians. So what I'm hearing is that hospitals are exchanging information about products that can be substituted. If you can't get the N95, you know, here's another brand, here's another model that our clinicians have found acceptable. So we're almost starting to get a list of here's acceptable substitutes. And the supply chain is working to do that in the background as they see inventory levels changing and, and protecting the frontline caregivers as much as they can from getting pulled away to say, yes, we can use that product. No, we can't. So more coordination. I mean, it's kind of a thing you wish you didn't have to get good at, but we do. And so the better we can get at identifying and identifying when we need substitutes further up in the demand chain the less will impact patient care. Clearly, clearly. Well, that's good to hear. I know there's always a concern in the supply chain. Another factor is counterfeit product. Absolutely. Uh, does the healthcare industry encounter this quite a bit? They, they do, and it has increased as, you know, there's always the challenge of balance. So, you know, the FDA had to react to the massive shortage we had with the, the PPE. And so they, they issued a lot of emergency use authorizations for product to be brought into the US. But when you do that, it opens up the door for the bad guys. Um, and, and they 
you know, they do too. I mean, there definitely have been quite a few reports on um, especially counterfeit masks, you know, things that aren't made to the same standard they're supposed to be. As the FDA finds these, I mean, they've added inspectors to be expecting cargo coming in um, to try and catch that. You know, then we try and recall those and get them out of out of the system, alert people. But it's it's definitely opened us up to you know. Unfortunately, there are those that take advantage of any crisis and you know don't have any qualms about putting counterfeit product in the into the mix. So that has been is an issue um, that we continue to deal with. Nancy, this report you said wasn't as strong. What do you think is holding back elective procedures? Is it, you know, people are less concerned? It, it seems unusual. It does. I thought it, you know, um, I think, you know, June will help us get a better handle on it. At this point, I really think it's more capacity. It's the labor part of it. It's it's being able, than demand. I, you know, everything we kind of hear about is there, you know, people did defer elective procedures. We think there is demand out there for those, um, but it has come across a little softer than we expected. So we've got to really spend some time figuring out, are there people that just have decided, hey, I got along this long and I'm not going to have that procedure done. Um, it just doesn't seem very likely, at least in certain kinds of procedures procedures, orthopedics that involve pain. I mean, people usually aren't going to put up with that for too long. Um, so we're just going to have to see. But I, um, I think there's just going to be a lot of pressure to figure out how do we treat people um, using less labor? How do we get more efficient? Because it takes a long time to fill that labor pipeline. Yes, and I think the labor pipeline is going to plague the United States probably through this entire decade. Oh, yeah. I mean, it didn't just start. It's been coming. Yes, yes, no doubt. Any word, because I know that you and I have talked about this on occasion as well, uh, on whether or not there's going to be any relaxing of requirements that nurses, doctors can practice across state lines. I'm not seeing any yet. Um, I'll do a little more research before next call, but... Um, you know, it seems like we hop from crisis to crisis, and when it things cut down a little bit, then people back off and get oriented somewhere else. But I'll see what I can find out on that and see if there's maybe some um, bright spots out there we ought to highlight. It certainly would be interesting. I know that there are nurses that uh, are traveling nurses. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the correct terminology. Do they have to be licensed in multiple states to do that? That's my understanding that they do, that they work for agencies that help facilitate that so that they can travel to different states um, to do that. Um, and that's letting up some of the traveling because of the COVID coming down. Interesting. Well, it's a fascinating industry. And before we ever started these discussions, Nancy, I was unaware of all of the moving parts in the hospital and healthcare industry. And so I appreciate when you come on and educate our viewers, including me, <laughs> uh, about all of those moving parts. No problem. I appreciate you having it, sharing it, and helping educate more people about the industry. 
So as you look at this report and we look at next month and kind of the trend, because you and I have been cautiously optimistic about the COVID rates waning, mm -hmm. uh, does it appear to be at this point that COVID is uh, becoming less of a concern, less of an impact, and maybe a return to life as normal? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, that's certainly where everybody wants to go. You know, I think right. that, you know, at one point, maybe we thought we would get, quote, rid of COVID. I don't think that that's something that seems very realistic. I think, you know, they, they talk about, you know, making it, you know, more like the flu, where you've got vaccines and you've got mechanisms to, to deal with it. You're still going to have a population at risk that does end up in the hospital, but that it's, it's more manageable. And I think that that's kind of the direction folks are trying to go is to figure out kind of how do we live with it and have it not just overtake everything. Certainly, and that's everybody's uh, hope, wish, and prayer. Nancy, thanks again for joining us. I have to plug the Institute for Supply Management. We have been working with them since 2013, doing these kinds of reports, and we appreciate when the committee chair takes time to come on and share with us. Thanks for being with us, Nancy. No problem. Thank you. And so for those of you who want to find this report, it is at ismworld.org. And while you're surfing around, stop by jacketmediaco.com where you can find the other ISM reports that we do and the other podcasts that we produce. And thanks for joining us again on Manufacturing Talk Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.